You're listening to the Anomalous Podcast Network. Multiple voices, one phenomenon. Hey guys, how's it going? I am back from Colombia. As you can see, I'm a little bit sleepy still. Jet lag is still playing tricks with me. So bear with me. Um, it is great to be back. Thank you to everybody with the, who sent messages of support while I was out in Colombia. It was really nice. Good to see everybody here. Um, I just want to take a moment to send some thoughts out to everybody in the Ukraine today. That wasn't the best news to wake up to. So my thoughts are, are with the, the citizens of the Ukraine. Um, let's not waste any more time. I am so honored to be able to speak to this gentleman today. I am a big, big fan of his work and his YouTube channel, New Thinking Aloud. So without further ado, please put your hands together for Mr. Jeffrey Mishlove. Jeffrey, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Vinny. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Like I just said, uh, I'm a big fan and I really appreciate you taking the time to to spend some some time with us here today. So thank you. My pleasure. Well, I, I think it'd be great if we could kickstart this off by just going back a little bit into, into the past, maybe your early days of university, I believe in the early 70s and how you got into the, the subject of parapsychology and things like that. Yeah, I think my interest, if, if we look at the UFO side of things, goes back to about the time I was 10 years old. Uh, I started reading UFO books in the, in the local library. So that would have been mid 
50s, I even wrote a letter to uh, a well-known writer at the time, a skeptic. It was a professor of astronomy at Harvard University and uh, asked him about UFOs. And he wrote back to me when, when I was a 10-year-old child. So this, this is a long-standing interest of mine. And uh, I, when I got to college, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, it was a very good school. I got a degree in psychology, but I did my senior honors thesis there on the psychology of religious mysticism. And actually, I, this is in the 1960s. I went into it. I started this project as a skeptic. I thought there are certainly some psychopathologies that will account for people reporting that they see ghosts and are having mystical experiences. But by the time I started digging into the research, I realized that actually some of the uh, people who are reporting these experiences are amongst the most successful, healthy-minded people in society. And uh, so that that sort of turned me around. And at the same time, being a child of the 60s, I was uh, getting exposed to uh, an alternative worldview based on uh, the use of psychedelics, based on the war in Vietnam. Today, we're having a, a, another war. But back, back then, the uh, war in Vietnam was huge in terms of the social impact it had on college campuses all across the country. And young people of my generation were uh, one of the slogans that that was common when I was a college student was never trust anyone over 30. <laughs> it was a, a really strong sense that that something had gone very, very wrong with mainstream culture at that time. These days, I'm much more sympathetic to mainstream culture than I was then. But uh, in, in any case, that, that was sort of my very first uh, exposure to these things. And uh, then I went to graduate school at Berkeley in, in California, have a master's degree in criminology. But while I was doing an internship at San Quentin Prison, doing group therapy sessions with murderers and rapists, I had what we would now call an after-death communication. Uh, it came to me in a dream. My great uncle Harry appeared to me in a dream at almost at the very moment of his death. And I, he was thousands of miles away at the time. I hadn't been in touch with him maybe for 10 years. And, uh, but the dream was so powerful that when I woke up, I was crying tears of joy and simultaneously singing a song which in uh, the Jewish tradition is one of the most sacred songs. It's only sung in the high holidays of, the, of Judaism. So I, I was so touched. I wrote home, said, how's Uncle Harry? I had a dream about him. And my mother phoned me instantly saying, how did you know Uncle Harry just died? Uh, so that really spurred me to switch gears. And um, I knew that I was very interested in studying human deviance, but I made a decision at that time to 
focus on the positive side of human deviance, not exclusively psychopathology and crime. So I created a unique individual interdisciplinary doctoral major at Berkeley in parapsychology. And that that took me seven years. Uh, but at the end of that time in 1980, I received a diploma from the university that actually says that my field of study is parapsychology. And to my knowledge, it's the only such diploma in the world that identifies parapsychology as a legitimate field of study. Wow, that is absolutely impressive. Um, um, so, so during all that time, were you still keen and interested in the UFO subject like alongside it? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, because at, at the same time, uh, back in 1972, as I recall, I sponsored Uri Geller's first major public appearance in the United States. I, I was sponsoring symposia. I was doing media. I was doing radio programs at the time on the local Pacifica FM station in Berkeley. And uh, if, if you know the story, uh, Andrea Puharich, the first researcher who wrote about Uri Geller's uh, achievements, uh, writes extensively about the relationship between Geller and a mysterious phenomenon associated with UFO sightings that uh, Geller referred to, as I recall, as Hoover. Wow, I've not heard that one before, actually. Yeah. Oh, I think... oh, yes. And so the gentleman that you mentioned that wrote first wrote about Geller, was that the book, um, Yuri, was it called? Am I yes, yes, it was. by on. Andrea Puharich, who died many years ago, but back in those days, uh, I knew him well. Excellent. And did you did you ever, by the early seventies, had you experienced any any UFO sightings or or anything of that sort? Well, I really got involved in that sort of thing in nineteen seventy six when I. Uh, met Ted Owens, also known as the PK Man. And uh, I ended up writing a book about him. It didn't get published until 1999. Uh, but Ted Owens claimed uh, that he had psychokinetic powers, the or mind over matter powers. He had actually been a uh, research associate working with J.B. Ryan at Duke University while he was a college student at Duke back in the 1940s. So uh, this this goes back a long way. And uh, he claimed that uh, he was in telepathic contact with aliens and that they empowered him to perform various psychokinetic feats that he would do in conjunction with them. It was never quite clear to me whether this was his psychokinesis or whether he was telepathically contacting aliens, but the, the phenomena were quite real. He would send letters in writing in advance to uh, myself and also many other researchers saying, this is what I am about to produce with the help of my, uh, he called them the space intelligences that he worked with. And, and then 
would come newspaper clippings showing various large-scale events that he had predicted did indeed happen. They could be power blackouts, UFO sightings, uh, strange weather, cold waves in the middle of summer, heat waves in the middle of winter. Uh, sometimes they involve volcanoes, earthquakes, tornadoes, uh, things of that sort. And over the 10 years that I worked with him, I accumulated documentation on over 160 of these demonstrations of usually events that you would say off the top of your head, there's maybe a 1% chance that this sort of thing would happen. But he was roughly, I would say, better than 60% accurate in uh these events. And, and they included UFO sightings. In fact, I asked him, could you produce a UFO sighting for me? This is back in 1976. And he said, yes, I will cause three UFO sightings to appear within a, I think it was a hundred mile radius of San Francisco. And so we began this uh, experiment. It happened rather quickly. I tried to put together a control group by using San Diego, a similar West Coast city, as a control. So I had other researchers in San Diego monitoring, you know, like by chance, are there going to be this many UFO sightings anyway? Well, uh, we were off to a good start. We had a UFO uh, site, an abduction, in fact, was reported in Concord, California, 4 a.m. in the morning by a, an unsuspecting person who had no interest in UFOs, but ended up reporting it to the police. It got into the local newspapers. And then Ted Owens called me up. And he said, Jeffrey, I feel it coming. This is going to be very big. This could be the biggest UFO sighting ever. He said, this will be seen by hundreds of people. It will be photographed. And the photograph will be published on the front page of one of your local newspapers. And that is exactly what happened three days later in December wow. of 1976. Uh, it was seen not only from the ground by hundreds of people who photographed and videotaped it, but it was seen from the air because uh, what was happening at the time was that the uh, local, one of the local colleges, Sonoma State College, as it was then called, in Rohnert Park, California, the art department was sponsoring a, an art exhibit by a pilot who was an artist named Stephen Pileski. And he had a little airplane. He's flying 3,000 feet above the campus with smoke trailing out of his plane, creating loop-de-loos and aerobatic designs in the sky. And that's the art exhibit. So the whole art department is out there with their cameras. And a UFO appeared right in his airspace. Wow. <laughs> And, and so um, I think uh, you can even visit his website. He still talks about that event. Uh, the videotape was shown on the Channel 9 Evening News in San Francisco. The photograph was published on the front page of the Berkeley Gazette. 
And um, I think at that point in time, it was probably the most significant, most uh, detailed and uh, documented UFO sighting in history up until then. Although, you know, the UFO research community wasn't all that well organized. I can't say that <laughs> other than my book that was published 20 years later, The PK Man, it, it ever got beyond local news coverage. But but there you have it. I, I was uh, I worked for 10 years with Ted Owens. So I had a kind of a intimate feeling for his understanding of his own personal telepathic connection with uh, these aliens he called the space intelligences. Wow, incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Did that then lead you on to believe that there is some kind of connection between human consciousness and uh, non-human, you know, um, aliens or entities? Well, there are two good examples there, Uri Geller and Ted Owens, both of whom have demonstrated and, and have tried very hard to work with scientists to demonstrate under good scientific controls that they had some sort of paranormal abilities, whether it's precognition, as some people still think Ted Owens was doing, or psychokinesis. We can debate that. But in both cases, you have people with very unusual degrees of paranormal abilities who are claiming that there is a, a UFO connection uh, that is in some way involved or responsible for those abilities. So yes, I took that very seriously as um, a, a hypothesis worthy of further exploration. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And, and over the years, when when you've thought about what these non-human intelligences represent uh, these days we see a lot of different uh, names for them extraterrestrial interdimensional crypto terrestrial and so on and so forth is there anyone that stands out for you more these days that is more likely to be a potential candidate for what they actually represent I probably lean toward the extra dimensional hypothesis. Uh, there's been a lot of advanced work going on in uh, what mathematicians and physicists call hyperspace. And I, I think it's also related to the afterlife uh, as, as well. If the Bardo planes, as the Tibetans refer to them, are real, and there's good evidence that, that that is the case. I've documented that recently in my essay for the Bigelow Institute uh, competition. Uh, excellent evidence for the existence of an afterlife. It has to be somewhere, uh, and somewhere that's probably not part of our three-dimensional space. It's not like you can dig into the earth and find the afterlife. Uh, or, or, you know, send rockets up into the sky and uh, arrive in heaven. You've got to uh, look elsewhere. And hyperspace seems like uh, the, where that elsewhere is. And so I think there's some overlap between these extra dimensional beings who may also be extraterrestrial in, in the sense that if, if they live on the other side of the galaxy or in a distant galaxy, uh, the only way they're going to travel here, if, if they have lifespans like ours, is uh, somehow we're traveling through hyperspace. And we have good reason to think from theoretical physics today 
in terms of what is now referred to as quantum entanglement, that ultimately every point in what we think of as physical space is intimately connected to every other point anyway. And, and that connection, uh, I suspect, is through what mathematicians call hyperspace. So that's a vast area. Today, I would say, Vinny, that we're in an, at a time comparable maybe to the 15th century when explorers were just beginning to map the new world, new continents, that there, there are whole new continents out there waiting for us to explore them. And these are continents of hyperspace, or you might even say continents of the mind, because the our inner consciousness has access, I think, to hyperspace, even if our physical bodies don't quite. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And I tend to agree at the moment, these things seem more of a dimensional nature than a physical being that just travels long distances in our known universe. So yeah, fascinating. I've got a quick question here from my good friend, Lara. She says, how would you describe the presence of ghosts and what are your thoughts on them? Well, parapsychologists like to use the term apparitions rather than ghosts, uh, because the apparition is seen in the mind of, of the beholder. Now, there are cases where apparitions are often seen simultaneously by multiple people. There are also cases where multiple people may be in a room or at a location where some people will see the apparition and other people will not. So it seems to me that uh, the ability to uh, interact with uh, this dimension is uh, dependent to some degree on the sensitivity of the person who is perceiving it. Uh, and another thing to consider is that living people are quite capable of projecting apparitions. Some of the earliest work done by the Society of Psychical Research, which was formed in England in 1882 to investigate phenomena of this sort. Um, one of their very first books was called Apparitions of the Living, where there are many examples. You could call it bilocation or examples of people who are highly developed meditators or people who just happen to have a spontaneous experience where they visualize themselves at some other location and then another person at that location will see them there. So uh, there's always been a, a debate in the psychical research and parapsychological communities as to whether these kinds of phenomena are attributed to the deceased or to the living. Uh, you know, it's, it's still, even after 140 years of massive amounts of empirical data, uh, we have so much yet to learn. And of course, this is not a highly funded field. We're not talking about high energy physics or, or astronomy <laughs> where we can spend billions of dollars putting telescopes into outer space. Uh, the amount of money poured into parapsychology and, and psychical research is a pittance compared to other fields of science. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned in there that certain people may witness an apparition, whereas others may not. And that straight away made me think about 
we often hear of UFOs where there's multiple witnesses, but some may perceive the object in a different way to the person next to them. And again, some may see the object and, and others might. So could there be some tie in there to, to it as one bigger picture where what you mentioned before and UFOs could well be related? Well, in, if we look at the esoteric literature, they refer to astral entities and the astral plane as sort of a, a realm of reality. You could call it a hyperspace dimension, I think, that interfaces with physical reality sometimes. Uh, and sometimes uh, it's the sort of thing that certain people are sensitive to. They can feel a presence or see an apparition because they have that sensitivity. Other people may not have it. So uh, it does seem to me that uh, if you look at the uh, reports that you've just cited and that I've just cited, and you combine that with the folklore, which I think uh, has a certain validity to it, it, it makes sense that uh, we're dealing with some kind of a phenomenon that can flit in and out of physical space. But uh, there are certain gray areas in which our physical reality intersects with some other form of existence that uh, cannot be perceived by everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And I like the way that you you speak about it because you're not stating it as fact and, and some people take it that little bit too far sometimes. And I just like the way that you present that. So, so that's great. Thank you. Um, now, we were talking earlier about work you were doing around 1976. And I'm, am I right in saying that was around the first time you first met Jacques Vallée? I first met Jacques Vallée in 1973. Right. I, remember, I remember it quite well because uh, I was on a date that night with the woman to whom I'm now married. And <laughs> Congratulations. That's good. Wow. So this is one of our early dates. I was living at the Institute for the Study of Consciousness in, in Berkeley. I uh, was doing radio programs and uh, Jacques Vallée came over that evening and I interviewed him for my radio program. And uh, my, my, the woman who is now my wife, Janelle, uh, was there with me on a date and sat in on the interview. Wow. What, uh, did you say that was your first date? One of our very first dates, yeah impressive to meet Jacques Vallée as well I'd say that's that's a pretty good one um, mm -hmm. and did that relationship then continue on from there with with Jacques um, obviously it did with your with your now wife um but with well, Jacques, yes it, it, it did and you know, as I mentioned I've known Jacques uh, for a long time um on and off and um it's not as if we've had an active uh, friendship over 50 years, but we've been in the same circles because back in those days in the San Francisco Bay Area, there were small groups of people that would get together to pursue our interests in uh, the paranormal. Uh, there was a group called the Parapsychology Research Group that met on a monthly basis. And uh, Jacques and I were both uh, actively involved in that group. Excellent. I'm going to I'm going to bring up a couple of other names that, I, if I'm right, you met in the 70s, and that would be Russell Targ and Hal Putoff, maybe as well. Are you able to tell us about how that how you met those guys and how the relationships formed? Well, um, once I 
establish my doctoral degree program in parapsychology, and I entered it in 1973, I was invited by a very interesting fellow, Arthur M. Young, to move into a home that he had purchased in Berkeley, where he was establishing a branch of an organization, a nonprofit that he created called the Institute for the Study of Consciousness. So uh, I moved in there. I, Arthur Young became something of a mentor to me, a remarkable person, the inventor of the Bell helicopter, um, a person wow. who had a, a long-standing interest. After, he, he invented the Bell helicopter Model 47 in 1947. It's the little one with the glass dome and the skids. And yeah, my name. It was, it was the first commercially licensed helicopter ever. And at that point, he decided he was going to pursue studies in, in what he sometimes called the psycopter. In other words, exploring mystical and psychic experiences. And he had uh, enormous wealth and uh, prestige, and he traveled all over the world. And uh, so he had invited me to live with him at the Institute. And uh, they would have all kinds of guest speakers who would come to the Institute and speak. And so Russell Targ and Hal Putoff showed up and they began talking about their early work in remote viewing. And they invited me, why don't you come over to SRI? You can see for wow. yourself what we're doing. So in 1976, I, uh, in February of 1976, I, I went over to SRI. Uh, at the time, they were doing research with Uri Geller. Uh, it was getting a lot of publicity. They were getting funding from uh, the CIA and other uh, government agencies. And uh, I, I had my very first remote viewing experience that day. I did quite well. And uh, at the same time, they informed me that they had this big file sitting in their office from a guy who was basically writing to them and saying, why are you wasting your time with this Israeli psychic, Uri Geller? Can't you see I'm the world's greatest psychic? <laughs> and this this was Ted Owens. And right. uh, there was a drought going on in California back then. And Ted Owens had written to put off and Targ basically saying, I'm going to prove to you that I am the world's greatest psychic. And I'm going to do that by ending the drought where you are right now in California. They had um, their offices at SRI International. Back then it was called the Stanford Research Institute. Yeah in Menlo Park, California. He said, and, and it was a serious drought at, at the time. I mean, the, uh, everybody was not flushing their toilets wow. uh, uh, in order to save water. Uh, and, and he said, I'll end this drought and you'll know that I did it because it's going to happen in just a few days. There's going to be every kind of freaky weather you can think of, snow, sleet, hail. There are going to be power blackouts and my signature UFO sightings. And in your local newspaper will run a story saying that the drought is over, even though at that moment, the stories in the local paper were no end to in sight to the drought. So that happened. 
pretty much just as he said it would happen. And Russell Targ sent him a nice letter saying, what a great prediction. Thank you. And Ted Owens wrote back to them and said, hell no, that was no prediction. I caused it. And wow. at that point, Russell Targ and, who were, and Hal put off, who were getting, as I mentioned, funding from the CIA, the last thing they wanted was another flamboyant psychic doing psychokinesis uh, because their work was focusing more and more on remote viewing. I just interviewed Russell recently, and he made a point to saying remote viewing overall is much more effective than psychokinesis. So why risk your career on psychokinesis? And certainly they didn't want to have flamboyant psychics around their laboratory. It was not the sort of publicity that their funding agencies wanted them to have. So he asked me, would you mind taking this file off of our hands? If you're a promising young graduate student. This would be a great project for you. And we don't want it here. So I did. I took all their files and I began my own research with Ted Owens at that point. Wow, that's an incredible story. I'm I'm kind of new. I'm quite a nuts and bolts researcher historically, but in the last few months um I've been more interested in in the other aspects of well, of, of all sorts of things. I've become very open, hence why I'm speaking to you today. And I, and I watched the documentary Third Eye Spies, which obviously features Russell and Hal, you know, prominently. And so that really opened up a new door for me. So to hear things, stories like that from from yourself is absolutely incredible. So so thank you for sharing that. Well, um, are you in uh, Britain right now? I am in. I'm in the north of England. Yeah, uh, because my next encounter with Ted Owens took place in London. Oh, please do tell. A, a fact. What what happened? This would be the summer of seventy six, and um, after February was, as I mentioned, my uh, when they gave me the files, they, there was an organization called the Parascience Institute that sponsored a conference at the University of London. Uh, in, in that summer. And there was a drought going on in London at the time, a serious drought, so much so that they had to bring water in by truck to some of the communities outside of London. And once again, the papers were saying no end to insight to the drought. And what had happened was that uh, a little news article about Ted Owens ending this drought in California got put into a popular magazine at the time and no longer being published called Psychic Magazine. Right. In fact, I think it was put off in target, leaked the story, and it got in the magazine. And people in London were experiencing a drought, so they contacted Ted Owens and said, would you mind ending our drought while, while you're <laughs> ending droughts? And they ended up inviting him to attend the Parascience Conference, the University of London. People like uh, John King, I think was his name, was a mathematician who had worked with Uri Geller and had written a book uh, very favorable to uh, psychic functioning, although later he changed his mind because he concluded that it couldn't be electromagnetic. And as far as he was concerned, there was no other possibility. If it's not electromagnetic, it can't be real. But 
That aside, the day that Ted Owens arrived in London, I was already there. I was staying with friends and they told me, if you want to have your picture on the front page of the London Times, all you have to do is go down to Piccadilly Circus carrying an umbrella. People will think you're crazy and they'll take a pic your picture and you'll get on the front page of the newspaper. That's how serious the drought was. Uh, but the day Ted Owens arrived, it started raining in torrents in, in London. So much so that the London tube, uh, the subway there got shut down be because of the rain. And the local papers published a story as before saying the drought is now over. Wow. So, uh, so that it was the circumstance in which I met him, but he was a flamboyant American, um, big man with a big white beard and a booming voice. And he was a member of Mensa, a very high intelligence and he was also very peculiar. He came onto the stage of the Parascience Conference carrying a little, we're not carrying, pulling a little red toy wagon behind him, <laughs> stacked high with papers. And he said, these papers are all the documentation of the many demonstrations I've done, proving that I'm the world's great psychic, the PK man, the ambassador from Earth to the extraterrestrials. And you being British would probably appreciate the British audience did not like that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I know what you mean. They, <laughs> uh, you know, brash Americans are, are not necessarily at all uh, compatible with uh, London and, and British sensibilities. And he was practically in fact, not practically, literally pulled off the stage in the middle of his talk. And, and uh, it, it was a very weird circumstance. They had brought him onto the stage early because the, the speaker didn't show up. Well, fine. But then the speaker came. And so they said, you have to leave the stage now. Our speaker is here, which was very... Uh, disconcerting and humiliating to him, to be honest. Yeah. And uh, at that point, I got up and I said, well, I know you're having a hard time understanding this man, but I can testify because I know put off and targ personally about what he had already done in California. And at that point, because I defended him publicly in a moment of humiliation and embarrassment, we became good friends. And we had a good bond and a good working relationship for the next 11 years uh, until his death in 1987. Wow. It's funny you mentioned droughts in London. And all I have in my head is it's always raining here. So <laughs> it must have been a strange year that year. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, let's, if it's okay with you, I'd like to bring it back to UFOs and, and a lot more up to date because you recently did uh, two interviews or a two part interview with Colm Kelleher, who I find absolutely fascinating. And I have to say, your two interviews were, were the, some of the best I've seen in, in recent times with Colm. So um, thank you for those. But my question would be, after listening and speaking with Colin, what are we, what your views are on Skinwalker Ranch? Well, I take Colin uh, as a very serious 
highly educated uh, scientific investigator who was given responsibility for a uh, research program that I think uh, was spent close to $20 million over uh, a year or two, or maybe a little more than that. And uh, I think he did a very credible job. I've heard from many viewers who say, how come he never got any photographs? Well, we don't even know whether that's true or not yeah. uh, with regard to photographs, because I think a lot of the data that was collected may still be uh, confidential. It's owned by the U.S. government. So uh, I'm not sure about about that. But even if he didn't, we know that these phenomena are very elusive. And yeah. Uh, there are people who are inclined to disbelieve some of the bizarre stories that he had there. But as far, from my point of view, they're no more bizarre than the sorts of things I've already been uh, telling you about with regard to Ted Owens and the phenomena he uh, was involved in. So I, I, I'm perfectly comfortable taking everything that Colum said in those interviews at face value. Yeah, I agree completely because... You know, we do hear people say, well, this can't be true or, or that can't be true. It's too outlandish. And, and I agree with you. We have to keep an open mind. You know, we may not be able to prove it, but at the same time, we may not be able to disprove it. So I'm with you on that one. So um, now one thing you mentioned earlier, and I have to say I wanted to leave this towards the end, is the Bigelow Institute of Consciousness Studies uh, essay competition that you won the grand prize of. So congratulations. Uh, I know that could not have been an easy competition to to even place high up in. So um, I wanted to talk about your paper, which I've scanned through. I have to say, I, I hold my hands up. I've not read it thoroughly through. Um, and even if I did, I don't think I'd understand a lot of it. Is there any way you could break it down for us to, you know, in layman's terms? Well, it, the essay ran about 100 pages and... Uh, I start the essay talking about the personal experience that I just shared with you earlier regarding my great uncle Harry, who came to me in a dream. And as a result of that dream, my whole life changed directions. And one of the main points I make in the essay is that the afterlife is such a powerful thing when it's encountered that many people have had their lives changed dramatically. I give some examples. One would be Bishop James Pike, who was the Episcopalian Bishop of California back in the 1960s. Uh, his son died. They had been in England, as a matter of fact, I believe in Cambridge, uh, together for three weeks. And then his son left and went back to New York and uh, ended his life by suicide in a hotel room, shot himself. And Bishop Pike was devastated, as you might imagine. Uh, the Anglican Church in England has actually had a fairly good, close working relationship for decades with the spiritualist community in England. And so uh, what the next happened to Bishop Pike was a poltergeist phenomenon. And he was still in the same apartment in Cambridge where his son had been with him. And he, they counted over 50 different poltergeist events, uh, objects moving around the, this little apartment over the next three weeks. And 
that got his attention and he began asking some of the British Anglicans uh, what they thought of it. And they encouraged him to go see a medium, Ina Twig, who was a well-known British medium. And he had, they arranged for him to have a session with Ina Twig. And in that session, his son came through in a very convincing way. And also who came through was his son's godfather, a close friend of Bishop Pike, the famous theologian, Paul Tillich. Uh, and so Bishop Pike is having these intimate conversations with Paul Tillich and with his own son through the medium, Ina Twig. Well, as a result of that, he ended up publishing a book about it called The Other Side, and he resigned as Bishop of California, a very prominent, powerful position within the Episcopal Church so that he could pursue his studies of spiritualism and also his studies of the origins of Christianity more uh, deeply. Uh, now, it, for people who don't know the story, he went to Israel to research the origins of Christianity. He got lost in the desert about a year or two later and died. And um, the, the medium in England, Ina Twig, was asked, can you help find Bishop Pike while he was lost in the desert? And she, in trance, uh, began describing exactly uh, what had happened to him, how he was trying to climb a cliff and had fell, fallen from the cliff. And uh, that turned out to be an accurate description. Wow, that almost sounds like it ties in a bit with remote viewing as well. Yes. You know, being able to, to locate someone. Well, there you go. You see, uh, it's very hard for parapsychologists when these kinds of events to occur to determine was Ina Twig in touch with the spirit of Bishop Pike or was she using her own clairvoyant abilities? Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't think uh, it, from a philosophical perspective, uh, that's not an easy question to answer. It's almost impossible to, to answer that question. But if you're willing to accept the validity of clairvoyance, it's, uh, it makes a lot of sense to accept the validity of after the afterlife as well. Yeah, I just find it very intriguing how all these separate areas of study do have these kind of crossover elements to them. And, and every now and again, you, you do see the two coming together. Um, and in that conversation there, you just were talking quite a bit about religion. And so that may just made me think then of a question about how do you see the future if we do start to see disclosure of a, a non-human intelligence? How do you think or how do you see the, the reaction or the relationship with, with religion? How do you think that will go in the future? Well, some people would suggest that um, what's happening, I think Carl Jung suggested that UFOs represent the birth of a new religion, the idea of gods in the sky, or maybe uh, I certainly hear from some, I'm in touch with uh, various people who think of themselves as contactees, people who claim that they have been journeyed to other planets aboard uh, craft piloted by alien beings who are like us, like humans. And 
they describe these beings as being highly evolved spiritual beings, godlike in the way. So, you know, ascended masters or godlike beings, deities, devas, there are many different words, diamonds uh, for these beings who, who live in the sky and are here to have a benevolent interest in what occurs here on this planet. Uh, it could well be the birth of a new religion. And of course, uh, that will be threatening. I know people who identify with what they call the traditionalist viewpoint in which they consider these alien beings to be supernatural beings of a different kind, not daimonic, but demonic. Uh, and and they say, you know, we got to be careful and, and that there are all sorts of pitfalls and snares associated with these beings. So, I, and some people say, yes, that's a, uh, it's a good thing that they should come because these old traditional religions have, have misled us and we need a new religion so we can discover the truth. And the traditionalists say, no, the new religions are going to mislead you and take you down the wrong path. We need to stick to the tried and true understandings of uh, the ancient uh, religious teachings. So th there will certainly be an uproar. Uh, I'm inclined to think of myself as, as an empiricist, as someone who says, let's see where the evidence leads us. Let's see what we can learn from the actual observations that we don't need to um, make any kind of religious or spiritual assumptions just yet. Uh, and, and from that point of view, it seems as if there is a variety of uh, encounters that people have. Some of them seem to be, as described by one group of people, you know, very wise and benevolent beings. And other encounters seem to be um, deadly for yeah. people, whether it's uh, deliberate or accidental, maybe has yet to be determined. But it, it certainly seems as if some of these aliens are not exactly friendly. Yeah, absolutely. And we do hear about negative biological effects on, on people. And um, I think in the past, we've probably even unfortunately heard of death relating to interactions. Uh, luckily, that's not not too often. Um, Jeffrey, before we go, I do have a couple of uh, follower questions um, from Instagram, uh, if that's OK. Um, now, the first one comes from Carly Monster and, and Carly asks, has Jeffrey found in his study of the human consciousness, a.k.a. the soul, surviving bodily death? What are some of the types of journeys the soul can typically go on after physical death? That's a wonderful question. I think the, the most reliable answer that I know of to that question comes from a book called The Road to Immortality, which was uh, a channeled book or a book that came through automatic writing in the 1930s by um, an automatic writer or the, the term that was used in those days as automatist named Geraldine Cummins, who was an Irish woman living in uh, England. And uh, who was coming through her was apparently Frederick Myers, who died in 1902, I think, 1903. He was a great psychical researcher, one of the founders of the Society for Psychical Research and the author of the classic book. It's still regarded as a great classic over 100 years later called Human Personality and Its Survival of Bodily Death. 
And in this book, The Road to Immortality, he describes his experiences in the afterlife over, it had been about almost 30 years or so since he had died. And he talks about the various levels and planes and the idea of group souls and uh, the idea of a, a kind of spiritual evolution that one pursues. It's a description that seems to be quite compatible with, with many other descriptions of uh, this sort that come through the channeled literature and uh, other sources such as the Egyptian Book of the Dead and the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the idea that there is an onward progression of the soul. And ultimately, uh, what mystics say, all is one. Ultimately, one might say that uh, the, the very highest realization is sort of unity with uh, the one consciousness that sees through the eyes of all living creatures. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. I'm sure Carly will be very happy with the answer. And and finally, um, Salazar asks, can consciousness time travel? Surely. Uh, consciousness doesn't seem to have any limitations whatsoever. Uh, I would agree with the dictum of John Lilly, who I had the pleasure of interviewing several decades ago, in, in which uh, he said that uh, the only limits to human consciousness are limits that we ourselves impose, and those are limits to be transcended. That we we don't know the outer range of what consciousness can do. We know that people can experience precognition, looking into the future, and retrocognition, looking into the past, and remote viewing, describing. Uh, as Ingo Swan did, the situation on uh, Jupiter before the space probes arrived. He described rings around Jupiter that nobody knew about at the time. Uh, so consciousness is, is capable of uh, doing things that we can only begin to imagine. Absolutely fascinating. Well, Jeffrey, uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much for an absolutely wonderful conversation. It really means the world to me that you joined me tonight. And uh, are you able to give us any insight as to what's coming up on, on your channel on New Thinking Aloud? Well, as a matter of fact, I'll be doing another live stream myself on Sunday, uh, February 27th. People can go to new thinking allowed and uh, get information about that. It's newthinkingallowed.com, A-L-L-O-W-E-D, not A-L-O-U-D, but new thinking allowed is all one word. And uh, now to find out about that live stream, I think if they go into community, they'll find the link to it there because uh, it doesn't get uh, public until we go public 10 minutes in advance, but I'm in USA mountain time. It'll be right about this time, uh, 11 AM. My time is when we'll uh, begin that, uh, in three days, uh, from today. Also your, uh, listeners and viewers might be interested in subscribing to our free newsletter, uh, which is, comes out every week announcing in advance the, uh, videos, uh, another one that'll be released next week, for example, is British psychical researcher Callum Cooper is interviewing me about 
my background in parapsychology. Uh, there'll be another video with Russell Targ uh, released next week on New Thinking Aloud, and also a video with Sally Rhine Feather, the daughter of J.B. Rhine, who is considered the founder of modern parapsychology. Sally wow. is in her 90s, and she's going to talk about uh, the legacy of her father, J.B. Rhine. And finally, since you ask, on Saturday, I'll be releasing an old, re-releasing an old interview with James Harder, who was one of my professors at Berkeley when I was a graduate student there. He was the research director of a UFO organization now defunct, to my knowledge, called APRO, the Aerial yep. Phenomena Research Organization. He was one of the leading researchers engaged in hypnotic regression of UFO contactees, a man who had testified before Congress about UFOs, who was involved in uh, the investigations of the famous 1973 sightings and pass or abductions in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and many others. So I'm re-releasing that video uh, this Saturday. Oh, that's wonderful. And all of the links that, uh, that you've just mentioned will be in the description of this video below. So anybody watching can go uh, and find you quite easily. Um, well, listen, Jeffrey, thank you so much once again. And please stay in touch. I'd love to speak to you again in the future and enjoy the rest of your day. And, and for now, thank you very much. Thank you, Vinny. You did a fabulous job of uh, hosting the interview. And I hope we do stay in touch. Thank you ever so much. Thank you again. Bye-bye, Jeff. Bye-bye. Wow, that was fantastic, guys. Um, just before I go, I'd just like to say I'm going to be live again this Saturday um, at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. GMT with Mr. Lou Elizondo, Sean Cahill, and Dan Zetterstrom. So I hope you can join me there. You can find all the details on my Instagram account. The link is in the description below as well. And it's good to be back. Thank you all so, so, so much. I really do appreciate you all very much. So for now, guys, take care, and I will see you soon. Goodbye.